Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Great form by you hitting play on this podcast. Now, check out Same Racer, the brand new racing app for Same Race multi-tips. Same Racer. Download from the App Store and Google Play. Powered by Bluebet. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. Legend. 458 is the total, out of which Bradman has made 309 not out. It's a world's record. First ball in Test cricket in England for Shane Warne. And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. To this is your sporting life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Here's your host, Sam Edmund. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. As always, we're here for our great friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Well, today, we're lucky enough to be joined by a real Fitzroy fan favourite. Tasmania Michael Conlon played 210 games for the Roys between 1977 and 89 with his relentless work ethic, all-action style, and running goals endearing him to the Lions fan base. Indeed, Mickey Conlon kicked numerous World of Sport goals of the week. He's also well-remembered for his bag of 10 against Footscray back in 1984. Mick, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Sam. Uh, great to be on the show. Hey, where do we find you and, and what are you up to these days? Are you still in the fitness equipment game with Johnson Health Tech here in Melbourne? Uh, yes, I am, Sam. So it's nice to be back working in Australia. I think over the last 20 years I've worked in and out of uh, various countries, but uh, certainly great to be working back in Melbourne. And uh, as I've said to quite a few people, I'm in my dream job of selling fitness equipment. So, you know, you could say I'm ending my career on a very good note. Well, you touched on it there. Life after footy has taken you some places, hasn't it? I think you worked at uh, Nike, Reebok, Puma over the journey. And how many years were you overseas and where were you based? Now, look, it's a great question, Sam. I often sort of pinch myself on this. I uh, was very fortunate to work in the sporting goods industry for over 30 years um, whilst I was playing football and and continued after playing. And having worked for Puma when it was uh, one of the big sporting giants globally and then Reebok when it was an emerging company and then of course later years with Nike. I spent 30 years working with those three companies and it took me overseas. I worked in Hong Kong on two occasions in uh, Asia Pacific regional roles and I worked in Korea on two occasions again for a total of about seven uh, years. Uh, I started up Africa for Nike and spent two years traveling through Jeez. Africa. And I lived in the US at uh, Nike headquarters for a year. So I sort of add all that up and I think it was four or five countries I lived in and out of for the last 15 years. So I was very, very fortunate to have those opportunities. Fantastic. Now, Mick, you're 63 years young. Are you selling this uh, fitness equipment or are you using it? Because you're in unbelievable, Mick. <laughs> well, look, at 63, 
Um, I still try to use it, and I, I wouldn't say I'm a great role model these days, but I would have been in my younger day. However, um, you know, look, being able to, because I did have, have ambitions when I uh, first started out in Melbourne and, and playing for Fitzroy of owning my own gym. And in actual fact, uh, that's how I first got my job in the sporting goods industry. I went and knocked on Ron Clark's door, who owned a fitness chain called uh, Lifestyle, and uh, he actually gave me a job. Uh, selling sporting goods equipment. So um, they never eventuated, but here I am selling fitness equipment into many of the premium gyms around the country. So it's certainly um, great to always have been in the sporting goods industry and still in the fitness industry. Now, I heard you on Gary and Tim earlier this year on SEM Breakfast, of course, and they like to, from time to time, talk about players' ailments and players from yesteryear are struggling with their bodies and what they've got that's crooked. The problem for them was that you don't really have any. In fact, (laughs) you took them through your typical routine. Now, this is staggering for those unfamiliar with it. Is it still the early wake-up call on a daily basis for you, Mick? Yeah, no, look, I get up at 3.30 a.m. every morning and uh, I was actually very fortunate I've got a couple of good training partners and I meet them around about 4.15 and we have about a uh, 20 to 25 minute run and I have a quick uh, 15 minute swim in the ocean outside the Brighton Yacht Club and especially in these temperatures it's very challenging and then I run back home and uh, finish off with about a 20 to 25 minute workout in the gym I've got at home so that all up takes me from about sort of 4.15 through to about 6am so I do that every Monday to Friday but I sleep in on Saturday and Sunday and oh, yeah. get up around about 5.30am <laughs> Nice to give yourself a nice big sleep in. That's right. So that's seven days a week. So it's, what is it, stretch, core, jog, swim, the gym at home. You mentioned but You even get up 3.30, you start your exercise, your program, your routine at quarter past four. So what are you doing in the, or ten past four, what are you doing in the half an hour before you get cracking? (laughs) That's actually a very good question. I actually do need about half an hour to wake up and I actually get up and have a short short black coffee and an orange and I have a quick shave and uh, do some stretching for about 10 or 15 minutes. And that's sort of, I need about 45 minutes, Sam, to really wake up and doing that, that sort of gets me going. So by 4.15, I'm ready to go. And, uh, you know, these days I couldn't jump straight out of bed and throw the clothes on and run out the door. Yeah. Um, I do need to take about 30, 45 minutes to really get the body um, loose and uh, feel like I, you know, feel like I really want to have a great day. Just unbelievable. So the obvious question is why? I mean, I'm all for a bit of exercise before work, but why so early, Mick? <laughs> Well, look, I've always uh, been an early riser. You know, I started off in the building trade as a young apprentice and uh, I was always up early. And then, of course, through the years of 13 years with Fitzroy, we had some great fitness coaches and we'd have morning sessions, rehabilitation sessions. So I sort of always did a lot of morning routines. And, and then getting into the corporate life, um, really having to catch up with work, I thought if I don't train early in the morning and I get caught up at work, I may miss a workout. So I sort of got into a routine of get your workout out of the way then I can go to work and focus on that and by the end of the day I'm cooked so I've always been one to you know 
get your workout first thing done. And I also, just mentally for me, it really stimulates me and it gives me a great feel. Yeah. So when I do hit the workplace, I'm in a good frame of mind. Now, it'd be a great way to start the day. And you were always supremely disciplined. I mean, anyone who saw you play and train knows that. I guess the story that still does the round to this day, Mick, is that the crisply ironed shirt stays crisply ironed in the car because uh, you hold the seatbelt out away from you, don't you? I know this uh, does the rounds at a few sportsmen's uh, nights and such, but is that the case? You just hold the uh, the belt out from the shirt just so she doesn't crease? Uh, Sam, absolutely. It's a little technique I was taught by a previous boss, and I've never backed and shied away from that because ironing a shirt is... Some men might know, some wouldn't because they may be fortunate to have someone iron it for them. But ironing a shirt takes about 10 to 15 minutes, so you don't jump straight away in the car and let the seatbelt crease it all up. So I was always one to at least prevent that, and I came up with a little technique of putting the left thumb out on the seatbelt. So I at least would get out of the car ready for an appointment uh, with a sharp-looking shirt. I love it. I love it. <laughs> so I, love it. I got nailed on that by... Uh, Every time someone would get in the car with me, they started <laughs> laughing, saying, what are you doing? But look, it's always a bit of laugh, and we've had a lot of fun with it over the years. I love it. Footy's all about nicknames. Yours was Tank or Crash, uh, so appropriate during your playing days. And you are regarded, as I say, of being almost ahead of your time when it comes to the strength training that, that you really got stuck into in the, in the 70s and 80s. How did that become a priority for you and were you conscious of the fact that you were one of the few that were really doing it as religiously as you were look it's uh I was very fortunate, and I think a lot of people have known this. I lived with Gary Wilson's parents when I first came down from Canberra. And, you know, Gary was the ultimate professional um, at Fitzroy and later became the captain. And and I sort of uh, trained a lot with Gary, and he probably taught me a lot of that. And we had a great gym at Fitzroy, and sort of the fitness coaches would come in, and I had a a famous fitness coach called Maury Rayner, and Mm. after that, Chris Jones and Tony Knight. These guys summed us up pretty well. We could run but we're a bit light on and we needed to put a bit of weight on and build ourselves up. So over a four, five, six year period, we sort of did a lot of hard work in the gym and every pre-season we'd do a lot of running but also maintained um, and to build our strength. And I used to maintain that during the season as well whereas you'd see a lot of players from November through to about February would work out in the gym but you wouldn't see them in the gym from April through to say end of August or if you're lucky enough in September. So, but I always maintain you've got to keep your strength throughout the season so and look I just really enjoyed it um, it never really became a chore for me it was like um, you know I enjoyed doing my weights and I was uh, 11 and a half stone when I came down from Canberra and I quickly over about two or three years got to about 13 stone I think when I finished I was nearly 14 stone hmm. and I put it in old so it was like around 90 kilo and um, you know I, was, I wanted to be a you know a bit of a barging ram and have plenty of weight on to at least uh, you know when you're 5 foot 10 and a half you've got to have a few bit of artillery and so I sort of tried to build myself up to be you know very strong and to sort of take some hard tackles and to also give some hard tackles. Well you certainly did all that and more Mick. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals a family owned business since 1934. Up next let's revisit Mickey Conlon's journey from Tasmania and via Canberra to the VFL big time. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. 
Great to have your company on This Is Your Sporting Life, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We're with Fitzroy Icon Mick Conlon. Mick, in Tasmania, where was home? Where'd you grow up? Yeah, look, I was born in Hobart. My father played uh, for the Glen Orkey Football Club and uh, captained them to a premiership, and he was um, given a coaching opportunity in Devonport, which was in the NWFU League, and we moved there when I was about two or three, and he took up to be captain coach at Devonport, and uh, he did that for about five or six years, and then we moved to Canberra, where Dad got an opportunity to be captain coach of Marnica Football Club, which was a very strong club in Canberra, and a job with the government because he was an electrician. So we moved to Canberra when I was nine, and he coached Marnica Football Club for, I think, about seven years with five flags, and sort of I grew up, you know, uh, with a very... You know, my father was a great role model for me personally. He was a great man, and uh, he, you know, was very good to me growing up with my football career, never overshadowed it or pushed me. So I was very fortunate to grow up with, you know, someone that was a very strong football identity and a, and a great role model. Before we come back to your old man, uh, Neil, what, what was, I mean, Tassie's a beautiful part of the world. What, I know you moved when you were nine. What are your memories of, um, of growing up there as little tacker? Oh, look, I have great memories of Devonport. It was a beautiful place. It was a coastal village in a lot of ways. And I can remember Daryl Bulldock actually running down my yeah. street because his in-laws lived a couple of houses down. And look, it was just a great place to grow up as a kid. It really was. And moving from uh, Tasmania, we thought it was the end of the world when we were young kids. But moving to Canberra was just another chapter. It was a, a beautiful city, brand new, everything so modern and the opportunity to play more sports. So in the school system in Canberra, I played rugby. You had to play uh, rugby union up in that part of the world, didn't you? Yeah, correct. School? So all through school, primary yeah. and high school, I had to play rugby union. And I actually really enjoyed that, which probably overshadowed my career around about from 14 to 17. And then I got back into Australian rules. So Canberra was a, a certainly an amazing place to grow up as well with you know, such a, all the amenities you had there. So I was very lucky as a young kid to grow up in you know really good places. And you mentioned union, which was compulsory through the school system, and obviously you were, you were playing a bit of Aussie rules. You were in a soccer and league on the weekend as well, so you were busy. Yeah, look, it wasn't uncommon, Sam, where young kids and a lot of my friends would play school footy on Saturday morning and we'd all shoot off and play for your local community Aussie rules team. And then we'd play soccer in the afternoon. And then on Sunday, if our parents would let us, we'd play rugby league, which was played on Sunday. So you'd get to play four different codes on a weekend. And you'd also play school football during the week. So I always look back at that from a skills point of view and just a lot of exercise. And I think learning a lot of things growing up, That you know, if I look back on that, those opportunities, it was just amazing to be, you know, go through that, uh, grow through that system. And given you, your dad, Neil, could clearly play the game at a high level, he was uh, captain coach um, all over the place and you, and you moved uh, to Monica in Canberra so he could take that job. Was it a case of just footy goes back as far as you can remember? It was just something that was always in your life? Yeah, look, it, it does. I can always remember being a young mascot running out for Devonport uh, when dad was coaching there. And I reckon I was you know, four or five years of age. I, I still have some memories of that. And I can remember... 
growing up and being a mascot and going to the football with him when he was coaching Marnica in Canberra. And growing up with uh, your father as a fierce competitor and a very successful coach also came with its uh, legacies because you had a lot of opposition uh, clubs and players that had a, a real hatred from a father in terms of his competitive spirits. He was a fierce competitor on the field and off the field. And I remember growing up, I was certainly in my first one or two years of senior football and through junior football, was a bit of a target for older players. And uh, when I played in the under-17s, I started at 15. When I played under-19s, I think I was about 16. And then first year of senior football, I got absolutely hammered. And every time I got hit, it was like, uh, tell your old man, uh, uh, I owed him one. So I was getting a bit of payback from my father's history. <laughs> but I look back on that and it was a great induction and a really good apprenticeship, that's for sure. Well, your old man was invited by Richmond to join them, wasn't he? But he, but he said no, didn't he? And, and I think regretfully. Yeah, look, he actually signed with Richmond. He had Jack Dyer and uh, whoever, the secretary of the club. Mm. And I still have a letter of that, I think, at home somewhere where he signed with Richmond but never left Tasmania. And because, you know, he, he felt at the time he had a great job and and he had, I think we may have had about three or four kids because we're a family of seven kids. And he just never went and he regretted that. And that was uh, when I was in the decision making of um, getting the opportunity to go to Fitzroy. He said, don't do what I did. And, uh, uh, you know, you take this opportunity and make the most of it. So as you mentioned, you're playing senior footy for the first time at Monica, but how did you, Mick, actually come to the attention of Fitzroy for the first time? Yeah, it was my second year of football, and I think I was around about 18, and I um, was playing reasonably well, but in a very good team. There would have been, you know, uh, a half a dozen young guys around my age, maybe a year or two older, that were far better than myself at that point in time, and I was very lucky to get plucked and just at the one week or two weeks I had three or four clubs wanting to come up and watch me play but Fitzroy took the initiative of inviting me down to train with the club on a Thursday and Thursday night and watch the game um, against Essendon on Saturday and at the training session um, they felt that they'd seen enough and straight away after training, put a Form 4 in front of my father and I and said, we'll give you 10 minutes to think about it, but we're prepared to sign you now. And um, here you go. So it just it came around so quickly, Sam, and we both looked at each other and said, he said, what do you think? I think I had Carlton and South Melbourne coming up to watch me play on the Sunday. And I said to Dad, well, look, Fitzroy's on the bottom of the ladder right now, and the other clubs come up the, uh, coming up on Sunday. If I have a bad game, I might miss out. So let's let's sign. So we're both in the same consensus, and uh, I signed with Fitzroy, and uh, never regretted it. You know, I just had uh, wonderful opportunities of playing for 13 years with the club. Oh, great memories! And if you don't mind me asking, Mick, what what did you get incentive wise? Uh, no, look, it's. Uh, not commonly known, but it was. I got a thousand dollars cash to sign on. Oh. I just thought that was uh, amazing because I was getting seven dollars fifty a game at uh, Marnica, and I was to get a hundred dollars a game. And they had intentions of playing me in the under 19s, then reserves, and then maybe by the end of the year I could uh, hopefully see myself in the seniors. And there was only 
I think, 10 games to go. I played one under-19s, four in the seconds, and played the last five in the seniors. So mm. I basically earned $1,000 of match payments, and I got $1,000 cash, which were all very secret about in those days. Mm. But that was big money for me. Uh, you know, As I said, I was getting $7.50 a game. Yeah, for sure. So that VFL, uh, I guess, the finish to the season, you make your debut as a teenager. It's round 18, 1977. I lost to Collingwood. I think the club you barracked for as a as a kid. It was at Victoria Park. Um, John Murphy, father of Carlton's Mark, obviously, he has 31 touches and kicks five in this game. You have it 13 times and you kick a goal on debut. What are the recollection or the memories like of this game? Do, do many of it, does any of it come to mind? Oh, yeah, look, I, I never forget it. I often think about it a lot. And I remember Kevin Rose was coach of Fitzroy at the time and he rang me on the Thursday night. And after training, I got home and said, uh, you're in, you're in the forward pocket. I'll see you on Saturday. And that was basically the end of the conversation. <laughs> and I was just so excited because against the, you know, the team I barracked for and here I am down in Melbourne six weeks later and I'm making my debut at Victoria Park and it was a muddy day, and I remember running out, running through the race, and just seeing the black and white army and Collingwood were on top of the ladder. And Tommy Hakes was coaching, and I could hardly see a Fitzroy scarf in the crowd. And it was just a big army, and I was just completely uh, overawed by the occasion. I remember competing for the ball against Phil Carmen. and I thought, wow, you know, here's my one of my idols at, at Collingwood. And John Murphy, he kicked five, you're right. He gave me two handballs. The first one uh, to kick a goal and I missed, but the second one he gave me, I actually kicked a goal. So Murph could have kicked seven, really. Yeah. Um, and he was a wonderful captain, but unfortunately I only had John for that season. Then he went on to play with South Melbourne. But the first game for me uh, was fantastic. Um, you know, to play against a powerhouse club like Collingwood was just a dream come true. You're with This Is Your Sporting Life, brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. You can find them there. We'll be back with Mick Conlon right after this short break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Sporting Life. We're chatting with former Fitzroy star Michael Conlon. Mick, you're obviously a proud Tasmanian. You spent a lot of time in the ACT as well. And yet one of the quirks of your career, I suppose, is that you pulled on the big V. You played State of Origin for Victoria four times, and you did, I think, play for the ACT at one particular point. So how did that come about? I guess it was the quirks of State of Origin at the time. Yes, look, the rules were in those days, wherever you played your first senior game, you were tied to representing that state. And I think in the 79 Carnival in Perth, um, I would have loved to have played for Tasmania, but I was, um, by rules, had to play for the ACT in what was the B division. And then, of course, I think a couple of years later, I had the choice of representing the ACT to play a Victorian team. But on the same weekend, Victoria was playing Queensland, and I was chosen to play for the Victorian basic number two team. And I definitely wanted to wear the big V. So I uh, quickly gave the ACT jumper the flick and uh, put the big V on. So I never got to play for Tasmania, unfortunately, even though I was born there, which was a great 
shame. And, but I was very proud to be chosen to play for Victoria on four occasions. And we spoke about your traits and skills as a player off the top. What, personally, what gave you the most joy in the game? What, what did you just enjoy doing when you boil it all down and strip it all back? What, did, what gave you the most joy in the game, Mick? Oh, definitely kicking a goal, Sam. <laughs> I was hoping you'd say <laughs> I had, that. Uh, <laughs> look, I think at the end of the day, the game's about scoring. And uh, obviously people get chosen to defend. People get chosen to probably, you know, get it out of the middle after the centre bounce. But I enjoyed, obviously, and played the majority of my career in the forward line. And there was nothing better than snapping a goal. And, uh, you know, I just loved it. So I was hungry. I was like, uh, <laughs> you know, a dog after a bone uh, once that ball came down into that forward line. I love it. You don't hear the term hungry too often anymore, but you were bloody good at kicking them, so fine. You live with that, don't you? Yeah, look, I, I always get uh, heckled and uh, teased. I never handballed much. and I used to pull a trick on a few uh, teammates of mine saying, well, yeah, the coach told me not to hand pass it to you because last time I gave it to you, you missed. So he said, I've just got to try and kick it myself. And they'd always say, really? Did he, did he really say that? But... Uh, they knew very well that if I thought I was in kicking distance, I wasn't going to waste an opportunity. Yeah. Well, you won goal of the year twice, I think, back-to-back, 82 and 83. And I think, didn't you win the grand final sprint at one stage? So you had all the ingredients there. Yeah, look, I was uh, lucky. I got chosen to represent the club twice in the the annual sprints. And the first year I was in 79, but I was up against Jeff Ablett, who was in his peak. And he had a beautiful fly start. I don't know if I ever would have beat him, but I nearly got him towards the end, but he was too good for me on that occasion. But in 82, I was chosen again. I was, it really depended if you're injury-free and you're at your best. You'd sort of, okay, you know, because you're going to run in front of 100,000 people plus a massive TV audience. So the last thing you wanted to do was to come last. And in 82, Frank Marchesani was running it and Doug Cox was secure. So I knew they could gallop pretty quickly. But I was very lucky. I just pipped them on the line and uh, I managed to win it in 82. And the same year, I actually won the goal of the year. So mm. I went into World of Sport on Sunday, Sam. Um, I picked up $6,000, $1,000 for the sprint and $5,000 for the goal of the year. And it was uh, nearly more than what I got in my total year's footy payment. So I was, <laughs> I was a pretty happy kid on uh, on that Sunday, I can assure you. Magnificent. And the side, I mean, you joined the Lions when they were on the bottom, but, gee, you had some great sides there and some great players. So in the 13 seasons at Fitzroy that you were there, the side featured in the finals on five occasions. I mean, Bernie Quinlan, Superboot early on, Gary Wilson as well. And then you had later on Ruse, Pert, Lynch, Osborne. That was some fantastic sides there. Yeah, look, and I always say that I was very lucky in the 13 years at Fitzroy. I played in uh, nine finals games for Fitzroy. In 79, we played in a couple of finals, 81 or so. Then 83, we probably had our best team. When I say best team, you know, our reserves were up up there high as well. 79 was a ripping side, um, but we just didn't get over the line and got knocked out by Collingwood in the second semi. But 83 was one year that we really felt we could win it. And we lost to Hawthorne by three points. Had to go back and play Essendon, who surprised us on the day and knocked us out. But that was a real great opportunity. I think we let go by in 83. And then 84, 
I was out injured, but we made the elimination. And in 86, we had a fairy tale run. Mm. We made, you know, played three finals matches that year uh, with a side that was nowhere near as good as what we had in 83 or uh, 79, in my view. I thought 81, we had a pretty good side. But So I played in finals on nine occasions for Fitzroy. And, you know, as you said, the players that I came up with, the uh, Wilsons, uh, Alexanders, and McMahons, and Murphys, Quinlan's walls, that type of players, they were superstars. And then we started to develop a really good crop of young players coming from the local Doncaster Templestowe areas in the in the Roos, Osbans, Perts, Blakeys, etc. So 83, 84, 85, I'd say 82 to 84 was super years for the club. Those three years we had, a, mm. I'd saw as good a side as anybody in the competition. There was a game in 83. It was against North Melbourne that year, and I think it was at the Junction Oval. They might have even been on top of the ruse, but you rolled them by 24 goals, Mick. You kicked seven. Matty Rendell kicks eight. Superboot uh, jags seven himself. What a day that must have been. Yeah, look, that was amazing. It was a beautiful sunny day, and the Junction Oval was a very unique oval. It was a big advantage for the Fitzroy team. But, you know, the calibre of North's team, if you look at Gary Dempsey, Schimmelbush, Keith Gregg, Arnold Brothers, they had a, they had a, Ross Glendine, they had a superstar team and we always struggled against North Melbourne and that particular day, we you know, nothing uh, went wrong for us. But Ren Dill was really at the top of his game and playing on Dempsey. Quinlan was, uh, you know, playing over the ruck rover a full forward and we really just had a really strong side. So... You know, that, that that was a year, as I look back on, that we probably really um, missed the opportunity to, to, to grab a flag. Mm. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the following year, too. Speaking of things just working for you, I take that to be the case against Footscray. Ten goals, one. Round four, another one at the Junction Oval in a, in a big win. That that must uh, that must hold some vivid and fond memories for you. Yeah, look, it, it's... You know, it was, a, it was a great chance for me to sort of uh, really get some uh, revenge in a lot of ways. I, um, you know, many, many occasions you'd kick sort of four, six or a five, five or, mm. you know, I had some terrible days of inaccuracy and, you know, to get 10-1 and really, you know, everything just went through and be given some really good opportunities. That was uh, just a dream come true and I never imagined it that I'd ever kick you know, a, a clean sheet with that many goals. So, look, I look back on that now, and if you tried to kick 10-1 again, it'd be pretty difficult, especially in today's footy. So I was very lucky, and Footscray always had a bit of a, a wood on us as well, and the player I played on, the Brian Cordy, was a really good player, and he'd beaten me on several occasions. So I finally got a bit of revenge back on him that day, but again, we had, were playing at the junction over, which was a big advantage for the club in those days. You mentioned the player you were playing on Cordy. Was the revenge also tinged with a bit of the fact that the, the coach that day for Footscray was Mick Maltas, who obviously in his playing days you had a bit of a history with? Yeah, look, I wasn't going to say that, but you raised it. And uh, Malthouse, uh took me out, I think, a couple of years earlier. In 82, we played Richmond at the MCG and... Uh, it was a big game, and I was going okay early, and uh, he got me a beauty when I was sitting under a ball uh, from a teammate who kicked it up high, and I could hear the ambulance coming as I was standing under the ball, and he got me all right, and uh, we never had a chance to play on each other again. And um, 
I thought that was uh, a bit of revenge of getting him back because that was his first year in coaching Footscray. And I was very lucky that he kept the same opponent on me for the whole day. And uh, that was... Let's just say we're evens now. <laughs> well, you were everywhere that day. It might not have mattered what, who was playing on you. Unlike the 86 elimination final at Waverley, but it's a bit like that old adage, isn't it? It might not be your day, but it can be your moment. And this has been well told over the journey, but rightfully so. You bob up, you kick the winning goal at the death to upset the highly fancied Essendon. And I think it was Michael Thompson. He had you well under control until the most pivotal of moments, Mick. Yeah, look, I always feel sorry for Tomo on that one. He's a great bloke and he was a very good competitor and a really good player. And I was having a horrible day. It was, you know, reasonably good conditions early. Then it started to rain. And we had Rendell and Quinlan out. They had Timmy Watson and Madden out. But they mm. were a juggernaut team. Essendon, really good competitors. We'd beaten them twice that year. And look, I had a chance to have a shot, I think about 10, 15 minutes to go, and it just missed. And I thought, oh, my God. How am I going to live this down? And having only four kicks up to that stage, I thought literally I was out of contract and I thought, I'm gone. This will be the end of me. And fortunately, Rougey laid a really good tackle. Richardson ran into a brick wall. He's lost out of time the ball. Leon Harris got the ball and he was about to kick it. And then he, he, he dodged the bloke and saw me out of the corner of my eye. And, and the Fitzroy side has still got a chance as the ball comes down there now. Harris dodges, he's clear, goes for the long kick. If they get a goal here, Conlon's got it. And I've given Mick Thompson a bit of the, uh, uh, let's say, hide-and-go-seek um, around the back of a pack, and he didn't see me slip off. And I just, for the first time all day, managed to be on my own. He could kick a goal to put him in front, he has! Oh, they're in front! By a point! By a point! And they might have won the game here! And I never thought about uh, not kicking that goal. You know, I had the opportunity, and I think a lot of it, a lot of people and players would remember once your confidence is up. And I was very determined to make sure that this was going to be a goal. And am I right in saying, Mick, that you occasionally still to this day get stopped by Essendon supporters who haven't necessarily forgotten this one? <laughs> occasionally I'll be in a, whether it's a cafe, a restaurant, I'll be walking along the street and someone will go, I'll never bloody forgive you, Conlon. <laughs> and without saying that, I know what they mean. They're obviously, and I always say, you're obviously an Essendon supporter. And they go, yeah, you bugger, you bloody stopped us from winning the grand final that year. And <laughs> Congratulations, Fitzroy, and the Lions are into the first semi-final. The reigning premiers are out of contention. What a sensational finish to an elimination final, and the Bombers can't break their hoodoo of trying to win an elimination final. It's only won one of them now out of seven attempts, and Fitzroy into the first semi-final. The final scores, Fitzroy, eight goals, ten, 58. Defeating Essendon, 8-9, 57. What a great victory. I'd say you've got to say that Fitzroy have won this because they have the biggest hearts we've seen in yes. football for a long, long time. Whenever I uh, run into Kevin Sheedy, he always shakes his head at me <laughs> and says, you cost me a grand final, come on.
Uh, makes it all worthwhile, I'd argue. Uh, we're talking to the great Michael Collin on This Is Your Sporting Life, all thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We'll be back to talk all things Fitzroy with Mick after this. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Love the company of Michael Conlon, who's been our guest today. Now, Mick, despite the Lions' financial problems, I suppose, you you never wanted to leave, did you? That thought never occurred to you? No, absolutely not, Sam. I was definitely uh, in love with the club. And look, funny as what I think the club was sometimes, you know, I had a great relationship with the supporters. And I really love them, and uh, I think the fear, the mutual, it was a you know, mutual feeling. So I never wanted to leave the club. There was really a couple of times I think they had to sign a contract, and I wanted three years. They only wanted two. It was minimal. They looked after me extremely well, um, and I had a lot of fun. And I, for me, it was an education as well as playing football there. And I just, you know, love the supporters. As I've always said to people, I'm, I'm from a blue-collar background myself. And the Fitzroy, to me, was a real hardcore blue-collar club. And, uh, you know, it was, just, what a, it was just a beautiful place to be. And I guess the training facilities, when you get there in 77, uh, they're at the Junction Oval. I think at the time, some of the best facilities uh, going around. And they... For whatever reason, you might be able to enlighten us here. They moved to Northcote, home games at Vic Park. The facilities aren't great at Northcote. I think you're, what are you, hanging clothes on a nail there, there weren't you? I don't think there was even a gym there at the time. So, And you were at Princess Park, Lakeside Oval. I mean, you were, you were nomads, really. Yeah, no, look, it was a, there was a bit of a, a, a bumpy road in the middle of my career with that. And unfortunately, um, you know, the Junction Oval was a fantastic facility. We had probably the best facilities in the league at that point in time in the first three or four years when I started at Fitzroy. So you can imagine us being told we're going to shift to Northcote and we're going to build a training facility there and play our home games at Collingwood. The home games at Collingwood didn't really deter us, but it was the training facilities that were critically important. And then we ended up playing or you know, training one night at Collingwood and we could rarely get on because it was bad year of wet weather. And then we'd be training at Waverley. Then we ended up back at uh, the Albert Park Lake in a way we we took over the um, South Melbourne's training facilities at the old Lakeside Oval. So I started my career at the Junction Oval and ended my career at the um, South Melbourne Lakeside Oval, which the facilities weren't bad there, but amenities weren't great. But however, look, we never really deterred from that. It actually probably toughened us up a bit. I think it had a bit of a telling factor with Robbie Walls, who saw the club was on, you know, struggling, and he had an offer to go to Carlton. So when the change of Walls, he going to Carlton, and we got David Parkin. Eighty, what was it? Eighty-five was a really tough year. That was probably the worst year uh, we went through in my career at Fitzroy, because we were struggling as a team. We were struggling off-field financially. And we had amenities that weren't up to what I would say a high-performance AFL club, VFL club standards. Mm. 
Does the demise, uh, Mika, the club still burn with you? I mean, did you follow them to Brisbane? I mean, do you classify yourself as a, a Brisbane Lions supporter? Yeah, absolutely, Sam. I, I was very embarrassed and really, you know, felt for the club when they got towards the pointy end of having to merge. You know, in my in my view, they had to do something. And, you know, some people might argue about the decision, but I think the decision to merge with the Brisbane Bears was a great one and it ended up being the right decision. Mm. Because you know the club ended up playing in four grand finals consecutively, and I think they've kept the history extremely well. And Arthur Wilson and some of the old Fitzroy people have done an amazing job in keeping the heritage of the Fitzroy Football Club with the AFL support um, at uh, the Dockland Stadium. So I think you know, for my youngest son, um, you know, follows um, the Brisbane Lions, and he sees that memory of myself in the Brisbane Lions. They very much support the history of the past players, both of the Brisbane Bears and the Fitzroy. So I think it's been a great result, mind you. It would have been great, maybe looking back on the history, whether the VFL at the time could have injected some money and kept Fitzroy alive, but. I think it was inevitable that 12 clubs couldn't survive in Melbourne, that mm. one or two had to relocate. And when I was there early, we were asked to relocate to Sydney. We declined. Yeah. South Melbourne took it. Then we were asked again to go to Brisbane, and we declined. And, of course, they formed the Brisbane Bears. So, it's a look, it's, I could write a book on it, Sam. I really could, on the 13 years that I endured of the heartache and the success of the club and the pain it went through. And it's a really interesting story. I think we're the only club out of uh, all the other AFL clubs that, you know, that is no longer in existence that went into a merger. There's been no other club to date that's done that. And it is funny the way things work out, isn't it? So you served for a time as, I guess, the head of footy in Queensland. I take it you're still relatively passionate about the game up there and its future. I mean, the Gold Coast Suns have had a few cracks at it now. Did you think they would be playing finals and contending by now? I know with hindsight it's easy to say otherwise, but going back in time, did you forecast it actually be a bit further ahead of where they actually are? Yeah, look, absolutely. I got up there in 2012 and the Lions were going through a tough time, but the Suns were emerging. I think uh, the Gold Coast Suns had done a great job. Travis Ould and uh, Scotty Clayton in the recruiting. I thought Bluey McKenna, Marcus Ascroft were doing a great job in the coaching. They, you know, Their list was fantastic. Ablett was firing. I reckon they were on ways, you know, really on, they were on track. Unfortunately, it seemed to sort of all fall apart when Gary Ablett did his shoulder and he really was the critical piece of the club. Um, and it's sort of just unfortunately, and Travis Hull came back, he ran a really good uh, operation there. And they, they've seemed to have struggled over the last few years, but I thought they were on track for success. I was really proud of their achievements. And the Lions went through a tough time but pulled through, I think, uh, Greg Swan has done an amazing job in pulling that around. And I think a bit of genius and a bit of luck. Um, you know, the Fags is just, that was just, you know, a, a risk, but turned out to be a monumental success story. Indeed. So I still follow that very closely. And it's good to see that the Suns had a win because I think football in the northern states in a rugby heartland territory, it's great that the AFL keeps that momentum because we've got a lot of talent and a lot of participants up there to, you know, to uh, convert to Australian rules football. 
What about Tasmania, Mick? That state, in fact, indeed, that government are fighting really hard to get a team or at least get some certainty around getting a team in the near future. As we've spoken about a few times, you were born down there. They need a team down there, don't they? Oh, look, Sam, I feel like going in there and pulling the sleeves up and seriously just cut through the politics, relocate a club down there or do what they did with GWS or the Gold Coast Suns, build a team. Mm. I don't. I can't understand why they're mucking around taking so long, in all seriousness. You've got the Tasmanian government wanting to hand them over $10 million a year. Well, you never had that from the New South Wales government or the, um, the Queensland government. So realistically, it's inevitable. Um, I'm hoping that the AFL and the Tasmanian government do get it done quickly because I think the timing is perfect. Michael Conlon, it's been an absolute pleasure to catch up today. You're ahead of your time with your preparation, your professionalism. You played the game, it must be said, in an eye-catching style that people really warm to. And you're a great legacy of the Fitzroy Lions Football Club, which is such a rich history, of course. Well done on all you achieved and continue to do so in the workspace. And thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Sam. It was certainly lovely talking to you. And thank you for joining us also. You've been listening to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. You can jump online. You find them at tobinbrothers.com.au. And we'll catch you the very next time we celebrate the life of another sporting icon. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.